Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that your love will fill our hearts and your wisdom will fill our minds and your spirit will enhance our characters to be like you and your grace will be on our church and that we will come to know you better as we study today in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly healing, health and healing. And the lesson title this week is an atmosphere of praise. And let's jump over to Monday's lesson and start on Monday's lesson. And somebody read the the, uh, last paragraph on Monday's lesson that begins, God did just that. God did just that, and we ourselves partake every day of this gift of life. Indeed, the gift of life carried with that breath has been shared by everyone in human race since then. Through our first father, Adam, the breath of God has been passed on to all of us. And through the act of breathing, we keep that original breath of life alive in us. Each breath we take should remind us of that original breath breathed into Adam. What do you all think about this idea? That the breath of life breathed into Adam is the same breath of life that all of us are breathing today. What do you all think about that? Yes, no? No, I think so. Yeah. Oh, I think that's right. I think that what I think the lesson is right on here that God made mankind in Eden and gave them an ability to pass their life along called procreation. And the Bible, uh, as far as the inspiration I read, tells us that God directly was involved in three human lives. Adam, Eve, and the incarnation of Christ. True? And all three of them had something in common. What was that? Same father. Same father. No earthly father. No earthly father. How about sinlessness? When, they, when, they came, when their human life became alive, they were, they were sinless. Adam and Eve, of course, didn't stay that way. Christ, thankfully, did stay that way. But some, some implications come from this. If God created a sinless, uh, we all know that we became sinless because Adam and Eve didn't continue that process. Um, what are the implications of understanding that this breath of life we have today originated in Eden? What conclusions can we draw from that that help us in our real world life today? For instance, if you, like me, ever treat patients, and a patient says to you, why did God want me to have schizophrenia? Why did God create my child with bipolar disorder? Why did God decide for my child to have autism? What would this paragraph and what we just talked about say about that? If we just concluded that all of us were created in Adam, and what condition was Adam in when he was created? then did God want any of us to have any sin or defect in our lives? No. Did God create us with sin or defect? No. No, so this informs us how to answer something like that. We can conclude right now that God did not want any of us to have any sin in our life, and he didn't want any of us to have any defects of any kind. His heart is for us, not against us, yes? Yes. Okay. How about, and I think I said this before, but when I realize the truth of this situation and I look in the mirror... I realize this is not as good as God can do. Yes. When you look in the mirror, and if you're not sure about that yet, uh, wait till you're 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. You'll be glad this is not as good as God can do. Isn't that true? 
<laughs> yeah, yes. We can recognize that all the defects and sin and pain that we have are a result of, a result of sin. And that God is working to heal us, not inflicting this upon us. I think those are some critical points to learn. Let's jump to Thursday's lesson. And somebody read the third paragraph that begins, Every soul is surrounded. Every soul is surrounded by an atmosphere of its own. An atmosphere, it may be, charged with the life-giving power of faith, courage, and hope, and sweet with the fragrance of love. Or it may be heavy and chill with the gloom of discontent and selfishness, or poisonous with the deadly taint of cherished sin. By the atmosphere surrounding us, every person with whom we come in contact is, consciously or unconsciously, affected. What do you think about that paragraph? Isn't that powerful? Have you ever felt it? Let's talk on the positive first. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody that just exuded a positive, uplifting atmosphere? Yes. Yeah, do you like those? Like being around those people? Yeah, I can think of some right now that always seem to be cheerful, smiling, upbeat, have a great laugh. They just lift your spirits when you're around them. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who created a negative atmosphere? Yeah. And now let's think this through. If we are generating a negative atmosphere, what does that mean? Is such an atmosphere information for those of us who are in that presence? Information about what? What do we learn from such an atmosphere? About what's inside of them. About what's inside of them. When Christ said the good man brings forth the good out of the good stored up in him and the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him, will we learn about people by the atmosphere that they carry with them? Yeah. If someone habitually creates a negative atmosphere, would that inform us that they are struggling with problems in their heart? Now, would we want to hate that person? No, because then what kind of atmosphere would we generate? No, we'd want to have compassion and love them. But as you think about negative atmospheres, what kind of negative atmospheres are there? I wrote down several different kinds of negative atmospheres. Could you... Sadness or depressive. Somebody's always gloom and doom. The half, the glass is always half empty. Right? Yeah, it's gloom and doom. Others, other negative atmospheres. I like the angry and violent. Have you met people that are just angry and always on the edge of violence, it seems, if not with their fists, with their words? Angry and violent. Others? Uh, less than violent being negative, but just a negative. Pessimistic, critical. Somebody's verbally critical. How about erotic and perverse environments? You ever heard of people being sexually harassed in the workplace? Somebody creates a, 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 a toxic environment like that? Self-absorbed? Life's all about them? No, no tolerance for other people? Others? Pouting? Ever had a pouting atmosphere? No. Any others? Someone always making a cause out of everything. Somebody's up on their cross being crucified, victimized atmosphere. <laughs> or just making every everything, even though it might be small, you just need to let that one go. Every, everything becomes a cause, and it's, it's exhausting. If we discover that we have a tendency to generate negative atmosphere, can we change that? How? Well, I want to be specific. Um, purposely, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, make a list of, or when you go to bed at night, really, is make a list of the positive things that happen to you that day. Okay. Yes, Russell. 
Okay. I would. I think that's a good question. Can we change it with our own power? None of us can change without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, but with that Holy Spirit power, can the Holy Spirit change us without our effort and cooperation? No. No. So it does take that cooperative effort. Um, how about this as an idea for how we can change the atmosphere coming from our heart? That we remove contributing factors to that negative atmosphere. Would that be something important to do? Remove contributing factors. Now, what kind of things can you think of that would be contributing factors to a negative atmosphere? Friends. Oh, so, so people we socialize with that might be negative or maybe unconverted, maybe have issues of their own that are just pulling us down because they're always negative, critical, vile, evil, uh, worldly, whatever it might be. So the Bible says, in fact, bad company corrupts good character. The Bible says that very clearly. So I like that. We would want to remove ourselves from friends that pull us down. Yes. Well, my, my question would be, why was it then when Christ was being our example on earth, being around this sinful nation, why did he not remove himself from this negative atmosphere of earth? Actually, if you, if, if, if you read in the, in the context of Scripture, he removed him. He said, I am not here for your approval. I am not here for your affirmations. What was he here for? He was here to minister to us. So when we say remove ourselves, we're talking about, remember, the question is contributing factors to our heart attitude. Christ didn't let the negative world inform him and form his heart attitude. He was there to give of himself to bless and heal the world. So yes, we are in the world, but we're not of it. So I like your point. I think it's a great point to make. We don't want to isolate ourselves in little camps where we don't socialize with the world, but we don't want to let the world into the heart so that it forms our internal value set, and uh, and and an atmosphere that we generate. But did Christ come to change, or try to change? He ministered to us. Yeah, that's the point. Yes. So his focus was not to be informed by the world to form his internal value set. He got that from the Father, and it flowed from him out to others. So in that context, we still want to be interacting with people, but we don't want to be interacting with people who have power over us that can inform us in negative ways. Does that make sense? So I like your point. It's a good distinction to make. But he did separate himself. <laughs> well, he took time away to rest. And every morning. And to rejuvenate and to spend time with his father. Yes. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how do you protect your own heart in situations like that? Like Jesus was in the world and not of the world. And I think, I mean, we all probably have friends that maybe are, their heart is not in a healthy place. They're more negative. You know, they don't exude this positive atmosphere. How can you embrace them and love them? and protect your own heart and your own, you know what I'm saying? See if this analogy helps. Imagine that you go and visit Russia. And maybe you're going to be there for six months on a, on a, a student visa going to school at one of their schools. While you're in Russia, would you ever consider yourself Russian? You're in Russia, but you're not of Russia. You still identify yourself and associate with people as an American, even though you're in Russia. Thing is that that negativity it really does affect you. You know, it's it's hard it's hard to be in it and around it and not feel. The... That's one of the reasons why we're talking about contributing factors we can remove. If you're in that negative atmosphere, one of the things to do, and if it's really having that pull on you, is to separate yourself from it. Yes. Maybe where the difference comes in, maybe not separate our own hearts, so we can be stronger in those situations. It has to do with maturity. Some people need to separate. 
other people have developed an internal strength and ability to interact with that without being pulled down by it. Christ, of course, was the most mature, and he could do that. So, uh, others were not mature enough to handle that and be pulled. So we, it depends on our maturity level. We think of our children. We as adults may go into certain situations to minister. We wouldn't take our children to those situations because they might be tempted by those situations. From people who are negative, what about removing other infecting agents to our mind? We're talking about the negative atmosphere we generate. What about unhealthy television, music, games, and books? Would that have any impact on the type of atmosphere that we generate in our hearts? Yes? Yes. Is there something in Philippians that gives us guidance on this? Whatever is? Whatever is pure, honest, praiseworthy, holy, good, truthful, these things. Focus on these things. Yeah. What about um, not only avoiding the negative, but I think was said earlier, filling the mind with positive things. Reading uh, healthy materials, uh, Bible study, prayer, uh, time alone with God, meditation as Christ took time every day. It affects our health, too. Oh, it absolutely affects our health. It sure does. It absolutely does. How about, um, if needed, professional counseling to help work through some difficulties? How about forgiving those who have injured us? Will that help change the atmosphere of our heart? How about repentance for offenses we've committed? Will that change the atmosphere of our heart? How about trusting God with the outcomes of our lives that we can't control? Yeah. How about setting healthy boundaries, especially leaving other people free to not like you without you trying to change it? Do you know how many people that I know that come to see me or spend so much energy trying to get another person to approve of them? Rather than stepping back and saying, wait a minute, am I doing what God would have me do in my life? Am I living the healthiest life I can as God gives me strength and wisdom, regardless of what other people think? Yes, Russell. How about developing a picture of God that is trustworthy, as revealed by... There you go, by beholding we become changed. Love it, love it. So think about this atmosphere. What kind of atmosphere would you, if you could, with your imagination, best you can, describe as the atmosphere of heaven? Describe it. Throw things out. What was the atmosphere of heaven? Peace. Peace. Love. Joy. Joy. Praise. Praise. Selflessness. Selflessness. Honesty or truthfulness. I like these things. Yes. It's it's safety. Safe place. Somebody said peace. So safety. Um, Compassion. Sympathy. Empathy. Mercy. How about the atmosphere that the world generates? How would you describe that atmosphere? Me first. Me first. So what kind of things come from that atmosphere? Fear. Fear. Yes, fear from the world. Insecurity, selfishness, harshness, greed, coercion, control, deceit. How about the atmosphere of heaven? Did it include freedom? Yes. Yeah. So uh, as we think about these two types of atmospheres, world's atmosphere with these qualities, heaven's atmosphere with these other qualities, let's, let's look at God's representatives in history and see what kind of atmospheres they had to contend. What about Noah? What kind of atmosphere did he have to deal with? He was mocked, wasn't he? It was a hostile, mocking, belittling atmosphere. What about Moses? What atmosphere did he have to contend? Was it constant rebellion and unruliness? Rebellion and unruliness. What about David? He was hunted, wasn't he? Hunted, actually, an whole army after him, hunting him for years. Hostile atmosphere. Jeremiah was persecuted, thrown into a 
tarry pit, rejected, ridiculed. What about John the Baptist? Beheaded. Jesus. We all know what happened to Jesus. The apostles and the early church martyred. What about the reformers? Martin Luther, Zwigli, the reformers. Martyred, persecuted, hunted. What about today? Here, 2010. What kind of atmosphere do God's people have to deal with today? Do we find similar principles being used even today? Hmm. Now, let's look back at all these people and ask this question. Those representatives of God, even though they were contending with such an atmosphere, what atmosphere did they take to the situation? Noah, what kind of atmosphere did he take? Perseverance and pleading. He, he cared for them. He wanted to say, he had an attitude of concern, didn't he? What about Moses? Self-sacrificing love. Take my life out of the book. My name out of the book. Protect them. David. He wouldn't touch. Remember, he had that two opportunities to kill Saul. He wouldn't kill Saul. An atmosphere of, of love for others. Of course, Jeremiah, after Nebuchadnezzar delivers him and takes Israel captive and realizes that Jeremiah was preaching for them just to surrender, 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 uh, he offers Jeremiah to come to Babylon and have a home and everything. Jeremiah instead chooses to go to Egypt, even though he's given the message, God does not want you to go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. The people go to Egypt anyway, thinking they'll get an ally in Egypt and be able to fight off Nebuchadnezzar, which they can't do. But what does, what does Jeremiah do? He goes with the people to continue to preach God's word in Egypt. What's, what atmosphere? Self-sacrifice. Of course, John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. What atmosphere? Jesus. Don't lay this against their account. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the apostles, the early church, the reformers. Do we see an atmosphere difference that we, we can take to, to life? In Tuesday's lesson, the first paragraph, it says, The air has many protective qualities. On a global level, the air and its suspended water vapor protect the earth and its people from solar radiation and from cold vacuum of outer space. The air recycles water and many chemicals to uh, moderate the climate. Within the atmospheric envelope, life is found over a wide, a very wide range of altitudes and temperatures. Some life forms require a high level of light and warmth. Other things require only a little light and very little heat to survive. Some animals require large amounts of oxygen, others a scant amount. And as I read that, I asked the question of myself and asked you, is that how God created it? For some to require lots of light and some little, some lots of oxygen, some little. Or have, has life on planet Earth adapted to the changes? In other words, it's evolved. Not the origin of life, but did God create life in such a way that life adapts or changes based on exposure, experience, and environment? Yes. For instance, did God create animals to kill and eat one another? No. Consider the breeds of dogs and cats we have today. Were all of those breeds created in Eden? No. Oh, how did they come to be? Only because there's a capacity or an ability for God's creation to adapt and change, yes? Yeah. So, what does this say about God? And think this through. How has human life on earth changed since sin? How are we different today than the Eden? Lifespan is shorter. Lifespan is shorter. Anybody have any aches and pains in the room? 
<laughs> Besides me? Did, 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 was that, is that a change? Yeah. Life experiences, what you eat, the behaviors you engage in, even the God that you worship, not only changes neural circuitry, it changes how the genes in your body are turned on and turned off. And you pass along, not just the genes you have when you have children, you pass along the instructions on how those genes should be expressed to your children. And with that in mind, I want to read to you the commandment. Exodus 20, 4 through 6. You shall not make unto yourself an idol or form anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Question. What does it mean? He says, should we be punished for our grandfather's sins? I've heard it presented that God uses his power to punish your children and your children's children to the third and fourth generations for the sins that you commit, that he inflicts it from heaven upon us. Is that what this passage means? I don't think so. Yes. I was going to say there's another passage in the Bible. I'm not very good about remembering where the things are. But there's, there's a passage in there where it says uh, something to the effect that uh, it's, it's not true that the uh, children's teeth will be set on uh, edge for the... You're ahead of me. It's right here in my next notes. He's bringing up a wonderful passage that we're going to look at. I've got the quote here, so we'll quote it just in a second. Thank you. Yes. Any, another hand. It's not really an arbitrary thing. God is more saying what we do is going to affect our children to the third generation. Not that he's going to make something happen, but that there are just consequences that are passed on down because of... Don't you believe the Bible? <laughs> Aren't you believers in the Word? Doesn't the Word... And God wrote this with his own fingers. I mean, can't we believe it and have confidence in it? But is he not just stating that, that he created us in, in such a way that these things will be passed on? And, you know, and, and him to, to, to tell it to someone and them to write it down, for us to understand it, the total picture. I like what you're saying, and I think it's reasonable. And I think that's exactly how God wants us to use our mind understand him, his character, read his word, reason through cause and effect, look at his, his word in nature, understand the principles, put it together, and draw a conclusion with our reason. However, some people won't allow us to draw that a conclusion unless we have an inspired verse that tells us it's okay. And so let's share the verse that was given over here. Yes. But isn't it wonderful that God created this capability? Because if we look at the positive aspect of that, that as the parents have uh, positive aspects in their lives and good Christian character, then this is also past that. Excellent. Russell. Before we move on, the text says that the, the sins of the father will be passed to the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. Yep. Okay. There must be something about the, the God that you hate that changes you. And conversely... Or is it is it that the defects that are passed along cannot be cured by God as long as you still hate him. But if you come to love him, whatever was passed on to you, he will heal you from. Hmm, let's keep that thought in mind. All right? So here's out of uh, Ezekiel, uh, chapter 18, starting in verse 1, and this was the comment that was brought up. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? 
the fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Understand the meaning of this proverb. It basically says, uh, today we might say, what do you mean by saying this proverb? The fathers don't brush their teeth and the children get cavities. <laughs> That's basically what it means. He says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to idols. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in, in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery. He does not lend usury at excessive rate. He follows my decrees faithfully, keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does of these other things, though the father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and the needy. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. But suppose the son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols. He does not defile his neighbor wife or oppress anyone. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live. Yet you ask, this is talking to people, you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who dies. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it because the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he has committed and does what is just and right, he will be saved. Yet the house of Israel says the ways of the Lord are not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? It is not your ways that are unjust. Rid yourself of all offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a right spirit. Hear that? Get a new heart and a right spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. What do you hear from that? Does that inform us that our reasoning about the commandment was right? Does God use his power to punish the children for the sins of the fathers? No. No. And one of the church founders weighed in on this issue and supports our conclusions that this is part of God's design template. He designed us in His image. He gave us an ability to create beings in our image. And so how we create ourselves by our choices and behaviors, we become more vile and worldly and sinful. We become more holy and righteous through God's grace. The choices we make change us, and then we pass that change. We create beings in our image. Listen to some of these quotes. This is out of Ministry Healing, page 371. What the parents are, to a great extent, the children will be. The physical conditions of the parents, their dispositions dispositions and appetites, their mental and moral tendencies are to a greater or lesser degree reproduced in their children. Or how about this one? This is out of Mind, Character, Personality 139. The nobler the aims, the higher the mental and spiritual endowments and the better development the physical powers of the parents, the better will be the life equipment they give their children. This is what was said earlier. 
In cultivating that which is best in themselves, parents are exerting an influence to mold society to uplift future generations. Now, is this simply speaking of the environmental influence and the home of origin only, or is this speaking of genetics? Listen to this next quote. This is out of Healthy Living, page 57. As a rule, every intemperate man who rears children transmits his inclinations and evil tendencies to his offspring. He gives them disease from his own inflamed and corrupted blood. Licentiousness, disease, and imbecility are transmitted as an inheritance of woe from father to son, from generation to generation, and this brings anguish and suffering into the world. So what does that sound like? Genetic? Genetic. Exactly, I'm going to tell you, it's exactly what science has proven. We have proven that when you engage in activities, that you will turn genes on and turn genes off. Uh, at, at, at age five, identical twins have 95% of their genes expressed exactly the same. By age 70, those same twins have less than 5% of their genes expressed the same. Life experiences change how our genes are turned on and turned off. And so we pass on, at the time that we have children, our current constellation of not just genes, but gene instructions. I saw a hand back here somewhere. That's so contrary to what it was in that to a distant past, where we, uh, science said just the opposite of that. And if we had faith in the word, inspired word, we would be okay. Science said just the opposite of what? Uh, and, and genetics. It said if you're born that way, you're, uh, genetics are going to be consistent. Yes, yes. You're talking about in the 19, when they first came up with the DNA code, they thought it was just which genes you have. Yes, yes. See how ignorant <laughs> we were. You notice uh, uh, Ellen White didn't say it that way, did she? But see, an inspired word, rightly understood, always harmonized with science, rightly understood. There's never a contract when they're rightly understood. <laughs> yes, but we can wrongly understand the inspired word, or we can wrongly understand science. We can wrongly understand either one. We'll get this one because since science has proved this to be true, I don't want anybody to be discouraged if you look and find that you don't have perfect parents. If you realize your parents were imperfect. Now, for those of you who had perfect parents, you don't need this encouragement. But for the rest of us, we don't have perfect parents. And so we need this encouragement. And this comes out of Desire of Ages, page 671. And I'll read it through, and then I want to go back and make some points that are very, very uh, important. In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to the, to the satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature, and this is the sentence. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. This is what I think the commandment meant, that the sins pass down to the generations of those that hate him. Because if you hate God, will the Holy Spirit be able to work in your heart? No. But if you love God, there's a regenerating power 
that will give you victory over any hereditary or cultivated tendencies to evil. Now, very clear here. This is hereditary cultivated tendencies to evil. This is not hereditary diseases. It doesn't mean that if you trust God and you were born with certain genetic diseases that you will automatically have that healed. God might. He does, sometimes does that. But that's not what this is talking about. You get a new physiology when this mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on corruption at the second coming. Incorruption at the second coming. But what you can have now is character development. So no matter what the contributing uh, factors are, hereditary or cultivated, you do not have to live vic- victim to those. Hand. What if you don't hate God, but you're afraid of God? Oh, what if you don't hate God, but you're afraid of God? Well, of course, in the old uh, Jewish mind, hate didn't mean necessarily animosity towards or a negative, I want to hurt you attitude. Hate was just the opposite of love and trust. That's what it meant. It means I don't love you or value you. And if you don't value or love them, then you were putting them in a second place. So it was called hate. So, yes, so it would, it would be the same thing. We fear God. Then we're not going to open the heart to him. If we don't open the heart to him, then he can't heal us if we don't trust him. So let's go back and listen to a couple of other passages in here. So first, first thing to notice is that hereditary, no matter the fact that all of us were born genetically defective and had various degrees of environmental injury, the Holy Spirit can heal it all. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Let's, let's look at the second couple other points here. It says, what do you think this means? The spirit was, was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. Think this through. There are versions out there that says our problem was a legal problem and a legal payment had to be made. What does she say right here? Without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. You mean... God would be unwilling to accept a payment? No, it means that his purpose in coming here was never about a payment. It was about uh, uh, obtaining what the Holy Spirit would use to regenerate us. And the next verse makes this very clear. St. Passage, it is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. Notice, the world's Redeemer wrought something out that the Spirit makes effectual in regenerating us. That's the plan of salvation, the plan of healing, the plan of regeneration, a new heart, right spirit, write the law in your heart and mind, have the mind of Christ, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, the heart of stone removed, heart of flesh put in. It's a regenerating, renewing process only possible because of what Christ has done for us. But without the spirit to do it in our hearts, what Christ has done doesn't help us. I find this powerful. What do you think? Do you think I'm misreading it? Does this mean we can actually experience a new heart and right spirit and a new life here and now? Yeah. And the core root, just to break it down to the core, guys, it really comes down to something very simple. That we have a heart where we actually come to love God and we really love other people more than we love ourselves. So we don't live in fear anymore of what people think of us, of whether we're going to get our way, and we're not constantly striving to promote self. That's really all it comes down to, truly. Because you can be a Sabbath keeper, a tithe payer, eating the right foods, and crucify Christ. Those people did that. It's about whether you love people more than you love yourself. That's the key. And then, of course, as you get to know God, you come in harmony with all of his uh, plans for us, and you want to participate in all of the blessings he has for us. 
But this gives us the opportunity because to explore further because some believe this idea that God inflicts punishment. So I want to, with you today, reason through some passages. If you hear this passage, I was reading this recently, and I thought, um, and in fact, my uh, niece and I were discussing it, I want to see how you would, would handle this. Deuteronomy 32, 40, and 41. I lift my hand to heaven and declare, this is the Lord speaking, as surely as I live forever, I will sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasp it in judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. How do we understand that? This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 40 and 41. This is the Lord speaking. Okay, so this is the Lord speaking that he's going to take vengeance, okay, with his flashing sword. Well, before we even answer that, should we ask this question, just in the general sense, what is the sword? What, what kind of an instrument is it? It's an instrument of war, isn't it? It's an instrument of war. So, in this imagery, God is saying he's going to use an instrument of war to take his vengeance. The question we should ask ourselves, we want to be Bible students, is what does the Bible tell us the, the, the kind of war God's involved in? Second Corinthians ten three through five. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Yes, God is in a war. How about Revelation? There's another text. There was war in heaven. Satan or the dragon and his angels fought against Michael and, and Michael and his angels fought back. Okay, or, and, and do you know the word war translated, the Greek word, is polemo, from which we get the word politics. <laughs> this is a political war. It is a war of words or ideas over whether, just as the scripture said in Corinthians, or whether God can be trusted. And so with this in mind, is this a Deuteronomy text to be understood that God wins his war of ideas by the exercise of might and power? That this is somehow telling us he will use his overwhelming, intense power to force his way? This is out of Desire of Ages 759. It says, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Whose government uses compelling power? You should mark that underscored in your brain, in your mind, in your character, because when you see it used, whose government is it? Satan's government. The last power of the end time, the beast power is going to do what? Coerce. No one can buy or sell, save him who has the mark of the beast. Everywhere you find coercive power being used, it is not coming from the Holy Spirit. Since the Lord's principles are not of this order, his authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles are the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. We are in a war of ideas. Can God win this war by using might and power? And so Zechariah tells us, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. And how does the Spirit work? It is the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of love. Truth presented in love. This is how he wins the war. So let's go back to what about the sword then? How do we deal with the sword? Well, it says in Revelation 19, 11 through 6, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Who is this rider? Jesus on his white horse. With justice, he judges and makes war. Wait a minute, he judges and makes war with what? Justice. What's another word for justice? 
Righteousness or rightness. Rightness. Would that even be truth? Hmm. Keep it in mind. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. What kind, what's this mean, dipped in blood? What's, what's that symbolizing? How about his sacrificial life? What he accomplished for our salvation. And his, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. What's the white linen represent? Holy, pure character. Now get this. Next verse, 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Are we talking a different sword or is this the same sword from Deuteronomy? Same sword. Now when you envision Jesus coming in the clouds, do you envision him with a giant piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? This is the same sword. But it is a weapon. It's trying to tell us this is a weapon. This is a weapon. To fight what kind of war? War of ideas. The war of ideas. And what is it that comes out of the mouth? It's not a piece of metal. What comes out of the mouth? Words. Words. And he is called the Word. We just read it. He is the Word of God. And so what kind of words will the Word of God speak? Truth. And so we read in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thought. What did it say he would do with the sword? He will judge with it. I mean, you see how simple this is? Why is it people insist on taking passages out of Deuteronomy and making God look like some horrible creature who's going to come down and inflict pain upon people? I don't know. What kind of war is this? It's a war of ideas over the truth about God. And what weapons are to be used? Truth. Truth. Jesus said, make a tree good and the fruit will be good, and make a tree bad and the fruit will be bad. For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth the good out of the good stored up in him, and the evil brings out of the evil out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What is it that judges? The word of truth. The truth of our situation. The truth of our condition. Our heart condition. Have we been renewed? Have we trusted God? Has the Holy Spirit come in and written the law, of, as it says in Hebrews, on our hearts and minds? Have we been, are we partakers of the divine nature? Or are we still holding to the values of the world? Are we still putting the facade of holiness on and righteousness on? The hypocritical facade of those who put Christ on the cross, claiming holiness while we hold to evil and depravity in our hearts. And so this gives us the opportunity to explore some principles. How do we approach? How do we tell? When you hear different ideas put forth, how can you tell which is the right one? In this class, I never hear, and I've said this repeatedly, I'm going to say it again today, I'm never here to tell people what to think. My goal is to try to get you to think, to learn how to think and reason for yourselves. My personal approach is what I call an integrative evidence-based approach. What I mean by that is I try to assimilate as much of the inspired record and the record in nature, both as my mind can handle and integrate it all together. Integrated evidence-based approach is my approach. And it requires all any individual truth, any individual truth, like say Sabbath truth, it's individual truth, to fit with the whole truth. 
You see, when we take a, a truth out of the whole, then we can present the Sabbath as the seventh day of the week, sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, put on the commandments established in Eden, uh, that we are not to work, and we can call it an arbitrary test of obedience from an arbitrary God. And we can kill the Lord of the Sabbath and want him down by sunset so we can keep that day. We have an individual truth ripped out of the web of the whole truth. And we create a distortion with it. Do you see it? So any individual truth also has to fit the whole. And the whole truth, what is the, the central truth that all other truth must align itself with? We wage and we demolish everything that sets itself up against the character of God or the knowledge of God, as it says. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that, that the wrath of God came because they preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. They, they uh, uh, did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the knowledge of God for a lie. He says it multiple times over. Actually, he says it six times that they didn't think it worthwhile to hold to the knowledge of God. And therefore, their minds became darkened, depraved, and futile. It's a battle for our minds over the truth about the character of God. And so we want all the truth must align itself with the truth about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. If any, if any doctrine undermines this truth about God, it is misplaced, misunderstood, misaligned, or simply wrong. You can be sure of that. And then further, all Bible doctrines, all truth, will harmonize with God's law. All of God's law including laws of nature and science, will always be in harmony. So my approach is to integrate as much as I can, as my, my feeble mind can handle, uh, and try to make the, the best picture that we can understand. Do you think this is a reasonable approach? Yes. I've heard it said by a preacher uh, very wisely, God doesn't want us to park our brains on the church doorsteps when we come in. He said that he heard a preacher say, God does not want us to park our brains on the church doorstep when we come in. Well said. Well said. Then where does experience come in? Listen to what Ellen White says is experience. Listen to this experience. Let's see if this is what you think of when you think of experience. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to theoretical knowledge, but many have an erroneous idea of what constitutes experience. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled by previously established opinions and habits. The results are marked with careful solicitude and anxious desire to learn, improve, and reform. What's that sound like to you? Thinking. Does that sound like scientific experiment? Careful experiments, yes. It's also just being tuned into how's God working in your life. Whenever you ask him about certain things, whenever you, you bring certain uh, conditions or concerns to his feet, how do you see him work then uh, in your life and in the lives of others? And if you're tuned into that, uh, you can certainly see his love written in so many things that that will build in your mind. Yeah, let's see if we can give us some examples. One more little section from this. This is out of CTBH 109, Let me, uh, um, which is Christian Temperance and Bible Hygiene 109. Let me give you just a little bit more, and then we'll give some, see if we can't make this real in your life today. It says, um, she goes on to say, those which uh, some claim experience actually is nothing more than habit uh, that they have uh, ignorantly continued to follow. This is what she says. They have not, there has not been a fair trial by actual experiment and thorough investigation with the knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Experience which is opposed to natural law, which is in conflict with the unchangeable principles of nature, is not to be relied upon. Interesting, isn't it? So, how about, for instance, the law of love, which is the principle of 
How would you describe it? Selflessness or giving or beneficence. Did you know that you can test that law? If you actually give from a heart to give to help others, did you know that inside of you, your blood pressure goes down, your heart rate goes down, your stress hormone levels go down, your stress center of your brain calms, that you actually have better physical health, less disease, if you actually practice those principles. It's well documented. It's called altruism. When you, People who are involved in altruistic activities have better physical health. This is testable. How about the law of liberty? Anybody remember the law of liberty? It's basically very simple. Imagine uh, there's some young people over here. Let's say y'all are dating, and, and uh, one of the guys decides this is a girl he wants to marry, so he takes her out and proposes. And she says, you know, I, I've got some fond feelings for you, but I'm not sure. And he puts a knife to her throat and says, look, if you don't marry me and love me, I'm going to kill you. What happens as soon as that, that threat occurs? Freedom is violated, right? Does love go up or love go down? Does a desire to get closer happen or a desire to rebel and get away? Yes. Three, first consequence when freedoms are violated is love is always destroyed. You can test this. You don't have to believe me. Married couples go home and one of you tried to exert control over your spouse. Tell them what, when they, where they can go, what time they have to go to bed, when they can get up, uh, what foods they can eat, what, how much money they can spend, all this kind of stuff. Tell them this. See what happens to love. See what happens. Conversely, if you're in a controlling relationship, breathe freedom in and see what happens. Love, love grows. If you're in a dating relationship and you tell somebody something and they say, that's okay, if that's what you want to do, I support you 100%. Doesn't that just draw you to them? Oh, I like this guy. Man, it's neat. It's testable. Consequence number one, love is destroyed over time. Love is damaged, will be destroyed. Desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. If you voluntarily stay when you have the option to get out, third consequence is individuality is restored, just destroyed. You lose your own ability to think and reason. You become an empty shell of a person. I tell you this because not only does this happen on human relationships, this law is testable, and I want you to really work it through, test it, because once you are convinced this is a law like gravity, very predictable, then you have a tool, a spiritual weapon. A spiritual weapon you can wield in this war about discerning what's true and false. When someone comes to you, when, you, when you're confident this is a law, and someone comes to you and suggests God is a God who would, would, would violate liberty, would coerce, would threaten. Remember, we read just a minute ago, coercive power is found only in Satan's government. But you have a tool now, a testable tool, that if you, if you want to use it, and somebody tells you this, you can discern the true from the false. And then what happens in churches and in spiritual situations when a God, a coercive God, an authoritarian God, a retributive God, a God who violates freedom is taught, what happens? Well, Paul in the New Testament tells us, and Jesus himself said in the, di- in the last days, that the love of many will wax cold. Remember this? And Paul says they will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. So when the love is waxing cold, is it waxing cold for the agnostics and atheists? Or is it those who have a form of godliness but deny the power? What's the power? The gospel, according to Paul, is the power of God into salvation. And what is the gospel? It's the good news about what? About God. And so when we take freedom out, then in the church, the love grows cold. And people will either rebel against God and leave the church, 
or become non-thinking, empty shells. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We don't ask any questions. We just live on faith. We leave our brain at the door. This is what happens. And many of you know that in our worldwide church, there has been a controversy or a dialogue ongoing over two pictures of God. Locally, since the most recent leadership change of our church, what I teach in this class is not appreciated. And tensions have risen in this church. And I have evaluated the various options, and it has been my goal in this class to keep the focus on Christ and the character of God that he reveals. And recently it's come to my attention that this may not be happening because uh, there are many people in our church that are starting to focus on personalities and individuals. Me against someone else or someone else against me. And in order to defuse that situation, I've decided that I'm no longer going to teach in this facility. And next week, for those who would like to continue to, to study the lesson with me, we're going to meet in Daniel's Hall, room 220, across campus, while we look for a permanent home for our class. I hope as we make this transition that we will handle it with grace and love, and we will keep our church leadership in our prayers. One of the members of the class spoke to me uh, just before class and told me that uh, she had heard um, concerns along these lines and that there has been quite a few letters of complaint uh, against what I teach that has gone to the pastoral staff and no letters of appreciation about what is taught here. And the suggestion was made um, by um, the person that, that knew about this that if, um, if this class has been a blessing, that you might want to let the, the pastoral staff know that, not in a complaint and not to say how dare you do anything, but simply to say if this class has helped you come to know God better, and has been a blessing to you and uh, helped you work out some difficulties in your relationship with God, that you might want to share that with the pastoral staff because evidently um, they're only hearing one, one side of things. So um, next, this is the last time we're going to meet in this room at, at, at this point in time unless some, some circumstances change. Now where's Daniel's Hall? Daniel's Hall is, uh, is across campus. It's next to the new nursing building that they're building. You can see that big new nursing building they're building is right next to it. Pardon? It's a social work building. It's a social work building, that's right. Mm -hmm. 220 for next week. And, and for those of you who, who may have any influence on campus and want to help us hunt for a permanent, uh, better location, um, I would appreciate any help that we might uh, be able to garner to try to find a better location for our class on, on campus. Um, I'm hoping that it will just allow some de-escalation of tension so people can get their mind focused back on God and not make this a personality issue, which evidently some people are starting to take the focus off of the, the two concepts of God which are being presented and instead focusing on two individuals, and that's not where I want the focus to be. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth and love and freedom and that you are not a coercive power. You have all power, and as soon as the rebellion started, you could have forced every knee in the universe to bow, but you haven't done that. You've given us genuine freedom. We pray that as we move forward from this place that we may take with us an appreciation of your character, 
that we may value your principles of truth, that we may live your principles of love, and we may practice your, your principles of freedom in the way we treat other people. May we recognize those who haven't yet come to appreciate what we have seen in you are coming out of the same world that we are, have been in, a world of darkness, a world in which Satan works actively to misrepresent you in a, in a, in a place where they have, have not had the privilege of having presented to them in a way that they could understand the truth about your wonderful character. And may we become effective in presenting that truth for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.